0: Episode 216 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the US-based British singer-songwriter and folk rock musician Al Stewart. Al rose to prominence as part of the British folk revival in the 1960s and 70s. He's best known for his 1976 hit single Year of the Cat from the classic platinum album of the same name. His other acclaimed albums include Past, Present and Future, and Time Passages. Al is also an expert on fine wines. This interview took place in 2015, when he was set to undertake yet another successful international tour. You're touring the UK and Ireland soon. What what will your show comprise? Um, Well, there are 17 shows. For the most part i'm going to be working
1: with a couple of guitar players dave nakmanoff who i've been working with for oh i don't know about 15 years now over here and also tim Remick, who um, played all the solos on the 70s albums it'd be interesting to work with two of them because they can kind of riff off each other and you know, swap mm. solos and things so there'll be lots of guitar playing <laughs> oh. and then uh, for the london shows at the albert hall we had a whole band Pretty much uh, a, lot, a lot of the people who are actually on the Year of the Cat record. Uh, Tim Renick, of course, playing guitar. Peter White will be the music director and playing keyboards. Uh, Dave MacManoff, of course. Uh, Mark Griffiths, he was in Matthew's Southern Comfort and he's actually mm. spent the last 20 years playing with Cliff Richard in the Shadows. Oh, wow. <laughs> we, should, we should be an, my ideal gig, but uh, <laughs> so he's he's playing bass. Stuart Elliott, who played drums on the Year of the Cat will be playing drums again. He's been uh, working with Kate Bush, and he was also uh, in Cockney Rebel. um, Who else? Uh, Gabby Young will be singing backup vocals, and so uh, I I think maybe even a couple of other people. I'm not really sure, but you know, they're all pretty much great players.
0: So you're doing you're the cat in its entirety, are
1: you? You're the cat. I'm doing everywhere in its entirety, and at the Albert Hall, we're also doing Past, Present, and Future in its entirety, which sounds like a lot of work. It's actually making me tired just thinking about
0: it. (laughs) Do you consider Year of the Cat your masterpiece, as most people do? As a sonic
1: event, it's probably up there. I mean, because of Alan Parsons' contributions to it, it actually sounds really good. I mean, I really am more of a lyric writer than anything else. So Mm. on a lyrical basis, I think Past, Present and Future is actually better written.
0: Mm.
1: It's more interesting to me. But on a sonic basis, which is how most people perceive music, then Year of the Cat probably sounds better, yeah.
0: And once it was completed, did you know it was special?
1: I had this odd relationship with uh, CBS Records. I made six albums for them, and, and Year of the Cat was the seventh. I made three, and then they re-signed me, and I made another three. And each one had sold better than the one before. I mean, the, the first one sold, I don't know, when it first came out, sold, sold a few thousand, nothing much, you know? By the time we got to Orange, we sold about thirty thousand, and then past, in the future sold I don't know seventy-five thousand in the first month, and Modern Times sold hundred and fifty thousand. Huh. Now I could draw this on a chart and on a wall, and and I know where the next one's going but they didn't they, they said you've made six albums for us and uh, you've never had a hit so you know thank you very much and good night and go find somebody else wow. <laughs> so after after six albums cbs dropped me essentially i mean they you know they didn't offer me any more money and uh, of course the, the, the album they didn't get was here the can i mm. there's something ironic about that <laughs> 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 they kicked themselves big time right uh, i don't know i mean i i, I you know all the time I was on that label, I don't think they got me one interview. I mean, the, the first three albums we made them, we just dropped them off at the front desk, and we never heard from them. I mean, eventually they, you know, they they packaged them and put them out, but um, I, I had no real relationship with with uh, CPS. I mean, occasionally I'd meet the, you know, whoever the head of it was, and I think I had dinner with with one of the guys there once, but you got the impression that they were working on the wombles really really
0: hard but not on me (laughs) (laughs) how how hard an act has your the cat been to follow well we did uh we did a follow-up uh time passages i guess
1: you know the the same idea of the saxophone and the orchestra and everything but the other thing is i i didn't really fit the mold and being a sort of uh i don't know a pop balladeer or whatever the hell it was (laughs) You know, I mean, I've always written historical songs, and I've always liked guitars. I don't really like saxophones, and oh. I, I don't really like like orchestras. I mean, it was, I guess, we did Year of the Cat with that big arrangement because it was an experiment, and then we did it again with Time Passages, and that sold a million over here. Oh. And at that point, I thought, you know, I'm not really enjoying this. I mean. I was travelling around with a, you know, a vast number of musicians and playing in big halls, and nobody was listening to, you know, all the other songs and the ones that I really liked, you know, old admirals, which has a much better song than of <laughs> cat. And people weren't interested in that. They, 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 you know, were waiting for the big saxophone somewhere. Well, yeah. I thought, yeah, I, I just, I'm, this is not moving me. It's not. It isn't my art. It, it might be somebody else's, but, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an imposter.
0: So has Year of the so they, Cat's popularity they, been a double-edged sword for you, would you say?
1: Well, I, no. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy that people like it. I'm happy that it was a hit. It's like a calling card. But it isn't really what I do. Uh, I mean, Rose to Moscow is what I do. You know, Year of the mm. Cat is just something which I did in the late 1970s. But I wouldn't want to make a living at, at doing that. You know? Mm. <laughs> I know a lot of people would have loved me to have gone making, making that record forever and ever and ever. But, mm. you know, but you, I, I think that way lies madness. You know, you can't... Um, Well, you can. I I mean, there are lots of artists and bands out there that do keep making the same record over and over again because because it's popular. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to write historical songs, I guess, which is what I have done. And obviously it works, because I'm still gainfully employed at this old age. I should say, (laughs) I didn't want to turn into Cliff Richard, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, When I was a student in the early 80s, I was pouring my heart out to a friend over a girl who was doing my head-in, and my friend tried to advise me by playing, if it doesn't come naturally, leave it. Have (laughs) Have you had many incidents of people looking for meanings in your lyrics that weren't intended, or taking them too seriously? Oh, yes, all the time. (laughs) I mean,
1: there are are some extraordinary things that that I would never have come up with in a million years, you know, and and they find these things in songs which uh, aren't there. Uh, Conversely, I put things into songs which people don't ever get. I wrote an entire song called Antarctica, which, you know, mentions Scott and Shackleton, and and it seems to be all about the expeditions to the South Pole at the beginning of the 20th century, and it's actually about a very cold woman. (laughs) 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 But nobody gets that. Um, I've heard lots of interpretations of of, uh, my lyrics, and they're usually wrong.
0: Do you have people saying they've made love to your music and had babies, and they've called them out? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Apparently, I started a a baby boom, Year of the Cat is total make music, at least over here. There are a lot of people who, who said that they you know, were making out in the back of a Chevrolet to, to, to that record, <laughs> uh, which I think is fun. The, the most extraordinary experience was I played at Miami Zoo. They had a, a concert stage, stage set up, and they were God. doing a series of uh, concerts, and the hippopotamus had been pregnant for you know, all eternity, and the, the baby would not come. <laughs> and I was playing Year of the Cat, and the hippopotamus gave birth during the thing. The zookeeper came found me and shook my hand and said, Thank you very much. <laughs> oh my God. I produced a baby hippo, apparently, or at least
0: helped you. <laughs> oh, funny. Did they name it after you? I don't know. I mean, I never went back, so <laughs> I can't tell. And over but the years, they... have fans given you cat related items or even actual yes. cats?
1: Yes, tons the period immediately around when that was the hit especially over here i, I got all manner of cats and uh, i put them all on my table and had a big party and i invited everyone to come and take a cat home with them so <laughs> 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 i had i don't know 50 or 60 other things you know
0: what they bring them backstage or something and say
1: yeah i suppose they brought them backstage i, mean, I, I just know we accumulated them we put them all in a big trunk or something i had stuffed ones glass ones all kinds of
0: cats oh i see not real ones <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. You had me worried no, for a while.
1: Nobody gave me a real cat. No, no, it was, um, they, they were all, you know, like, as I say, toy ones.
0: Have you ever owned a real cat? Oh, they make me sneeze. Oh, dear. So you're actually allergic oh. to cats. I'm allergic to cats, yes. <laughs> the
1: other cat had nothing to do with cats. I mean, no. It, 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 the song doesn't have anything to do with cats. Mm. It's, um, I had a girlfriend who had a book on Vietnamese astrology.
2: Mm-hmm
1: and uh, there was a chapter called the year of the cat and i may not know much about really anything but i i do know a song title when i see one
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely do you believe in astrology no
1: right i don't really believe in anything i don't think Uh, well no i believe in some things but not not astrology
0: Uh, as with much of your work there are a lot of great references in the year of the cat's lyrics like bogart and amy johnson lord grendel is that a case of you incorporating all your interests in life into your work
1: well, I, I tend to read a lot of books, and um, it rattles around in your skull uh, and eventually comes out in the form of a song. When I was, when I was 17, I was reading The French Existentialist. I, I read The uh, Tranché, which is The Outsider, by Albert Camus, which oh. I read in French, actually, oh. uh, which I couldn't do now. I forgot it all. <laughs> Camus took me to Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and uh, Jean Genet, and so I, I plowed through the French existentialists, and Sartre and, uh, has a, a, a trilogy called The Roads to Freedom, which was set in 1938 through to 1940. And I really didn't know much, because I'm, you know, I'm a teenager, I didn't know much about the war. I was intrigued by, you know, the, by, by the fate of Mathieu when the Germans invaded France, so I went out and bought uh, William Shire's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and I just, you know, discovered reading that that there was a whole different thing to World War Two, which I'd never, uh, I mean, it never dawned on me. I mean, now, now in the days of the Internet, probably everyone knows this, but uh, oh. most of the major battles in World War Two, obviously were fought in Russia. I had no idea about all this, so I went out and bought Alexander West's uh, History of Russia at War, 41 to 45. Hmm. And then I thought, oh, yeah, you know, the, the trick here is to read all the in- individual generals. <laughs> I read Guderian, and I read Zhukov, and, and, and a pile of other things. But that got me onto novels. So I was reading uh, The Deserted House and a bunch of other things, Darkness at Noon. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I'd gone through like 40 or 50 books between, say, I'm uh, 68 and uh, 72, probably starting earlier. And, and w- out of all of these books came, eventually came roads to Moscow. I guess the impetus was Alexander Solzhenitsyn had a book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which was a fantastic book, but he followed it with a a book called The First Circle, which is probably one of my ten favorite books ever. So Road to Moscow is partially based on Solzhenitsyn's life. It incorporates elements from everyone else. I mean, I actually mispronounced Gadarian (laughs) (laughs) in the song, but um, I did read Panzer Leib. So it's really... With any of these things, uh, Lord Grenville or pretty much anything that you can mention, it comes either probably from reading a book or watching a movie. If all else fails, I I basically just open an atlas because I can look at any page in an atlas and immediately see half a
0: dozen songs, you know. Is there any link between Flying Sorcery and your father?
1: No. No, flying <laughs> no. Sorcerer is another love song. I mean, it appears to be about two airplanes, but the two airplanes are actually lovers, and when they land at you know, separate airports, it's just, you know, they're separating. It's um, you know, an extended metaphor.
0: Would you mind telling us about your father, though, please? Um, I don't
1: know anything about him. He died just before I was born, right at the end of World War II. He was in the RAF, and uh, his plane crashed, and uh, that was it. I think my mother was about three months pregnant at the time.
0: Wow. And when did you find out about your dad? At what age?
1: Well, I mean, I knew he wasn't there, and uh, I knew he'd been killed in the war. You know, that's about it. I still don't know a great deal about him. Apparently he played the piano, which is is a good thing, I suppose,
0: you know. Hmm. And and may we know how he crashed and and where he crashed? Um, He crashed in, I think it was Lincolnshire.
1: I'm I'm not absolutely sure. I don't think he was even shot down. I think it was some sort of training exercise that went wrong. He was a navigator, I think.
0: And uh, he was a Scotsman, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, my grandfather lived in Greenock. and I was actually born in Glasgow. So, yeah, they were were Scotsmen.
0: (laughs) So you never wanted to go and see where your dad died and... Oh, you're not know, investigating and all that sort of stuff. It's not, it?
1: No, it's, it's an odd thing because I just recently got, um, uh, someone got in touch with me who was related to one of the other people in the, in the plane that crashed. So they sent me some, um yeah, you know, they, they wanted to know if I wanted to join some association or whatever. I I, I guess, no, I'm not. I don't know. I, I had no impulse to go and visit the site. You know, I wasn't there. It belongs to another time.
0: What type of plane was it, and how many of them were there, do you know?
1: I think it was Lancaster bomber, and what's the crew be, what, half a dozen or so.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm really vague on the details.
0: That's all right. And then how have you yourself felt about flying in aeroplanes? Have you had any worries? Well, I, I'm not in love
1: with it, but it comes with the job.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely it does, yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I spend a great deal of time on aeroplanes. It, it's, it's funny, because when I think about this job, people who are not in this business, think of it immediately you're you know you're a guitar player you go out you play concerts they think that's what you do that's actually four percent of what i do the other 96 percent is sitting on airplanes sitting in cars packing unpacking getting in taxes getting out of taxes hauling luggage around airports <laughs> hmm. and trying to scrape food together at two o'clock in the morning i mean the, that's the job i always say i would play for free because i like playing but you're gonna have to pay me for the rest of the stuff i have to do
2: <laughs>
0: have you had any worrying incidents on airplanes Oh yeah, I mean I I tend to yeah I'm a little bit nervous about them at the best of times, mm. but
1: uh, you know we're still here. Uh, I think I'm ahead of the game really. I mean uh, uh, when I left school, my parents and my teachers both insisted that this rock and roll thing, as it was then, you know, was a fad and it would yeah. only last about another three months if I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I should get a proper job and, and you know 50 years later I'm still doing this Absolutely. they couldn't have been more wrong I mean every piece of advice I got mm. from everyone I knew turned mm. out to be completely wrong it's all mm. wrong and not it, it, it's worse than that it's worse than wrong because the companies that they wanted me to go and work for like British Leyland mm. and I don't know all these companies they're all gone mm. I mean, <laughs> they're gone and the music business goes on. I mean, I, the advice was so upside down. I hmm. mean, now that I have children of my own, I absolutely refuse to tell them anything because I'm going to be just as wrong as my parents were. <laughs> and,
0: and do you have any siblings, Al? Uh, siblings? No. Right, so you were an only child. Yeah. yeah, well, I was because my father died. And do you have any treasured mem- mementos of your dad at all? No. Not even a picture or anything?
1: Oh, I think there's a picture. Yeah, I, I've probably got a picture somewhere. I don't, I don't know why I'm not... Um, as family oriented as you you want me to be no, no no no
0: not at all i'm just very curious i was really shocked to read about your dad on you know i was doing some research on you and i wondered if perhaps you had a stepdad later on and yes your i did i had a stepdad from the age of nine onwards hmm. but you're often referred to as a scottish artist to what extent do you consider yourself scottish
1: well as the song first world war ii blues says I was a post-war baby in a small Scots town. I was three years old when we moved down south. Mm. (laughs) That's the opening line. It's so obviously I don't remember much about Scotland, you know, and uh, I can't even do the accent, I don't think.
0: (laughs) Do you know if you were born in a hospital or a house there and if the house is still standing? Oh, no, I think I was born in a hospital. So I was born in
1: Glasgow, and my mother was living with my grandfather at the time in Greenwich. Mm hmm So, yeah, I was born in a hospital in Glasgow.
0: Mm -hmm. I was
1: pretty young at the time, don't remember much about it.
0: (laughs) Have you been to visit? What, the hospital? And the home that you were in as a child, yeah? Oh, no, I have no idea where it is. Actually, I do know where it is, but no, I haven't gone to visit it. Mm -hmm. Because I noticed that Glasgow is the first date on your UK tour coming up. Yes, I could. That's interesting. I, I, I um, I could go there. So you haven't deliberately made it the first date of your UK tour because you were born there? No, no, of course not. I,
1: I have no control over where I play. Okay. Uh, you know, we have an agent in uh, in the U.K., mm. and one over here, and basically they put tours together and we go and do them. I mean, I, I don't... It, it, that's another common mis, misconception which everyone seems to have. They keep <laughs> telling me, why don't you play in, followed by, you know, wherever they live. It could be <laughs> Canada, it could be Africa, it could be Australia, it could be anywhere. They say, why don't you come and play here? Mm. The answer to that is really <clears> simple because I haven't been invited. <laughs> I can't just get off the train and start playing on the platform in Canberra or something. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way. The way it works is that an agent will put together a tour, and then you, you're, the, you're the one who goes and does it. Mm. And uh, why am I playing first in Glasgow? You'd have to ask Paul Charles. <laughs> Do
0: you still have family in Glasgow or Scotland generally? Not that I know of. I must have relatives. I mean, it's inevitable, but um, I don't know who they are.
2: Mm.
0: And you don't visit for Scotland other than for work? Right, or feel particularly at home there when you're there. No, I mean, I,
1: I don't visit anywhere for for, for pleasure. I mean, mm. I like being in Los Angeles, and I have to be prized out of here and have to go on tour all over the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nice to be in different places. <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong, I mean, I'd, I'd be mm. totally happy to to play in scotland i'm totally happy to be there but uh you know i'm unlikely to get up one morning and think hmm uh, i think i'll go to scotland now (laughs) fortunately the job entails you know going to all these places so i do get to travel i actually travel so much that i I wouldn't do it for pleasure sure
0: yeah how would you describe your childhood in england southern england
1: i did i I described it i I described it a song called trains which actually is i think one of my more inspired (laughs) things At the beginning, what is in the sapling years of the post-war world in an English market town? I do believe we travel in schoolboy blue, the cap upon the crown. <laughs> <laughs> it was just that little English market town, and uh, you know, I, I went to boarding school, so yeah, I spent most of my time there.
0: And when you were a child, did anyone tell you you'd be a star one day? No,
1: absolutely not. But I told everyone. <laughs> I told them. I think I was about 12 and I was already telling them what record label I would record for. I got it wrong, but I was right about the job. Yeah, pretty much from the age of around 12 onwards, I never even considered anything else. I used to do ridiculous things. I I would buy the New Musical Express and I would go through it and I would write out all the new releases and, and then i you know when i bought a record i would memorize the serial number <laughs> <Bloody> <laughs> all the information uh it's just crazy stuff i mean no one does. i still know take a message to mary by the every brothers I, mean, yeah. I haven't looked at this for 40 50 years but yeah. the serial number is london american
0: 8942 i can do this stuff because i was obsessive i would write everything out and memorize it and learn it was the one event that happened in your childhood musically that you said that's it that's what i'm going to do Probably Lonnie Donegan,
1: he's the source of the Nile for everyone of my generation. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's the reason that John Lennon met Paul McCartney. I mean, you <laughs> <laughs> Lonnie Donegan is, is, is absolutely the root source of, of uh, you know, English pop music. Well, I was at school, and I think for the better part of a year, I would march around, you know, singing Grand Coulee Dan.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, I just, over and over and over and over and over again, I mean, in the misty crystal glitter of the wild and windward spray, men have fought the pounding waters and meadow watered grave. She tore their bows to splinters, and she gave men <laughs> dreams to dream. <laughs> uh, all this wonderful stuff. I mean, Lonnie Donegan did two things that I still do to this day. One is that he told story songs, and the other is that um, he, you know, had this, this way of interpreting lyrics, which, uh, you know, really thrust them into the forefront of your mind.
0: Did you do plays or concerts at boarding school? Did you take part in Well, I, I did... Um, The
1: the school actually banned the guitar for a year, which was a terrific impetus. They said it was an immoral instrument, (laughs) Hmm. probably because of the shape. So I had to keep it in the left luggage department of the local railway station, and I I would go to the railway station, and I'd take the guitar out and sit in the field behind the station and practice, because they wouldn't let me have it at school. So uh, far from doing concerts, I mean, it was actually banned for a year.
2: Hmm.
1: But right at the end, uh, when when they uh, had decided to boot me out of the school they'd let me do a concert
0: and we did we played we played a show there and what were your motivations for becoming a singer-songwriter money fame girls well those are all nice yes. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you have to be in love with the music i was just i was obsessive
1: about records i mean i oh. did nothing every spare moment of my time was spent playing records I, I, we had a garden shared. And, and i would retreat into the shed i had a record player and i had all my little 45s and that was it i mean that was the world you know the world really wasn't the world outside of that if i wasn't playing records i was playing the guitar mm-hmm. and trying to learn the solos so the motivation was that there was something sacred about these things you could hold it up this little round piece of black plastic no, it, it was it was, it, it was a an icon yeah. and I just wanted to I wanted to be able to hold up a record and see my name on it <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: talking of icons so, you, you met some fascinating people at the start of your career including Cat Stevens and Paul Simon any anecdotes about them You the well, Paul Simon I,
1: I, I lived in the same apartment as Paul for about four months I think. Yeah. and uh, I know Archie Garfunkel was there too uh, Paul had gone solo at that time that was a tremendous thing in the sense that writing songs i mean he would he'd be punking about on the guitar and i would hear him pause and you know well, sitting in the railway station got a ticket for my and then would be a, like five minute pause and oh, procrastination oh, new relation <laughs> uh, destination <Brilliant. laughs> and then it would go on and after three hours he would emerge and songwriters are weird because uh, you know if, if you've written a new song but you, you just need some sort of confirmation that it's okay. So you'll mm. play it to anybody who happens to be there who's prepared to listen. And even though Paul could care less about my opinion, he had to play the songs to me because I was the only person there. Mm. <laughs> so I got to hear a, a bunch of these things. Uh, I remember he wrote Richard Cory and came out and played it to me.
0: Did he give you any advice or say anything that you've never forgotten?
1: Well, no, I gave him some advice, uh, which is humorous. Okay, bear with me on this he finished home with Bound and then the very next day I think he wrote Richard Curry. And I was absolutely thrilled. I thought, Richard Corey was fantastic and told him so. And I said, incidentally, that thing he wrote yesterday, <laughs> throw it away, because this one's going to be the single and again, because Homer Bound was the one that I <laughs> said wasn't so good. And um, you know, of course, I was completely wrong. And he just gave me a pained expression and ignored me. So, Have you met had him had
0: since? It. Have you been kept up with him all, this, all these years? Or? Uh, no,
1: I've run into him a few times. And yeah. uh, I got a message from him uh, about, you know, about half a year ago. Yeah. Uh, wishing me well, but no, I haven't seen him. He moves in completely different worlds, I think. It wasn't so much getting advice. Uh, you'd, you'd, you'd look at these people and you'd see what they were doing, and it would be inspiring. I mean, Bob Dylan oh. obviously was a huge influence, oh. because you've got to remember that when I left school, for the first two years, I was playing in rock and roll bands. I mean, I was trying to be a lead guitar player, and I was playing Twist and Shout and Wipe Out and, you know, whatever <laughs> you know, whatever people wanted. I, I knew all the Shadows numbers, and yeah. I, knew, I eventually knew all the Beatles songs. And w- that's what I was doing. And then Bob Dylan came along. It was a w- Okay, Here, here's a weird coincidence.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, Lonnie Donegan is in the Chris Barber Jazz Band, and he's playing the banjo. It's 1953. And what happened was that, you know, they'd play in pubs, <laughs> and uh, they'd have a break at halftime. The band would all go over to the pub and have a drink and, and you know then they'd come back and play another set and uh, Lonnie, for whatever reason, didn 't drink or didn't care about it, so he would he would get up and do like uh, a few oh i don 't know lead belly songs or you know whatever whatever uh, folk blues things uh, just on an acoustic guitar while the rest of the band were in the pub, and at first, nobody listened and then eventually. They started applauding, and then eventually they started coming, you know, especially to see his, his halftime performance. And exactly the same thing happened to me, courtesy of Bob Dylan. Uh, I was in a band called David Lickhouse and the G-Men, and they played this place called the Disco-Go-Go in Bournemouth on a regular basis, and they would all go to the pub at halftime. And just for the kicks, I suppose, I learned a couple of Bob Dylan songs and got up and started singing them, and people applauded it. Now, that's very unusual because, yeah. you know, when the band were playing and people were milling around and dancing and talking and whatever, and nobody ever applauded things unless it was something that they really liked. But when I sang Masters of War, which I think was the first thing I sang, people clapped. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I thought, you know, maybe I'm onto something here. I mean, no one had ever heard of Bob Dylan in Bournemouth in, in you know, eighteen sixty three but... I thought, you know, there's something going on, and you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is, do yeah, you, Mr. Brilliant. James? And I didn't. I didn't know what it was, but I knew, I knew it was something, and it, and it seemed important.
2: Mm.
1: And then eventually, I went up to London, and I saw Bob Dylan, playing at the Albert Hall, and the whole place was packed, yeah. and everybody was absolutely silent all the way through the concert, and then applauded hysterically. And I thought, this is it. Mm. <laughs> I mean. In a nutshell, there were 35,000 kids in, in, in during the Beatle era mm-hmm. uh, in England who could all play better guitar than I could. But but at the beginning of 1965, when I had to make the decision, uh, I realized that there were only probably about 10 lyric writers in the whole country. I mean, nobody, nobody cared. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, what are the odds? Uh, and If I try really, really hard, I might end up being the rhythm guitar player of Uriah Heap, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because nobody wanted to be a lyric writer, I thought if I do that, I've, I've got a much better chance of getting somewhere. And then what really finished me off was Jimi Hendrix, because in mm. in the back of my mind, I, I still thought, well, maybe if this doesn't work out, I can join a band. And then I I actually saw Jimi Hendrix's first three concerts at the Savile Theatre in London. Oh. And I walked out of the place after the first concert knowing I would never play an electric guitar again. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was all over at
0: that point. <laughs> Did you intend to be more of an albums artist than a singles artist? Well, certainly not when I was playing in rock bands. I mean,
1: no. uh, there, w- there was no such thing as an albums artist. I mean, <laughs> everything was singles in those days. I don't think albums became popular until what the late 60s, probably. Fashion yeah. Peppa was probably what, what kicked it all off.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Were, were there any, ever any plans for you to become a pop heartthrob? Uh, I didn't look right. Um, I looked in the mirror
1: were very early on probably when I was about 14. And, and you know, I, I knew what pop stars looked like. They looked like Elvis Presley, and if they didn't look like that, they looked like Cliff Richard. I mean, it was pretty much, you know, there was a, a definite look, and pop stars had that look. And what I saw was this kind of pale, skinny apparition staring at me from out of the mirror that didn't look anything like a pop star and probably never would. I don't know, it, it was nasty, really. I mean, it, the realization that you couldn't be the one thing that you really, really, really wanted to be. And then I realized that if you were if a lead guitar player, nobody cared what you looked like, because they were all focusing on the singer. Mm. I mean, Hank Marvin, you know, <laughs> you know he wasn't exactly a uh, rock Hudson, you know? No. <laughs> so I figured I could be that, because that
0: wouldn't matter. You know? And one of your great assets, of course, as an artist, is your unique singing voice. Did anyone suggest early on that you should change it in any way, or, or is it something that you worked on? Oh, I never worked on it. I never liked it. I mean... I don't know many people who actually do
1: like their, their talking or singing voices. I mean, it's a shock when you first hear it. Or at least, I mean, probably not with all the technology that's around now. But, I mean, in those days when people didn't even have tape recorders or anything, you know, nobody, nobody heard their own voices. Mm. And when I finally did hear my voice back, it was, it was a real shock. I thought, oh, God, that sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but then I realized, here's, a, here's another crazy thing that I realized really early on which is, by definition, singer-songwriters pretty much can't sing. I mean, Bob Dylan obviously started it, but you look at Leonard Cohen, sings like Richard Nixon, but nobody mm. cares, you know. And Tom Waits, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Thompson. <laughs> I mean, none of these people can sing in the orthodox sense, which is why it's a lot like the oyster and the pearl. I, th- I think that the fact that they can't sing make- makes them work ten times harder on the meaning of the songs, because mm. um, the songs become everything. If you're, if you're a singer and you have a great voice uh, very often you sing gibberish i mean things things that probably would be rejected by the hallmark greetings card company become (laughs) your lyrics because (laughs) it's all about the voice it's all about the singing whereas with with singer songwriters it it has nothing to do with the voice everything is is in the content of the song
0: is it true that you write four sets of lyrics for each song um i have done yes wow (laughs) I work backwards
1: to pretty much everyone. I mean, I've talked to a lot of artists, and nobody does it this way. No. Uh, with Year of the Cat, actually with all those records at that period, uh, what I did was I went in and I recorded all the music, everything, all the backing tracks, all the solos. Basically, I spent all the money and then took it home, and I would get up in the morning and listen to it. And I would I'd listen to it and see what the music wanted to be about. And I would say, okay, what, what does this song want to be? You know, hmm. I, I, it's a puzzle. I have to listen to it, and I have to write some words. But in the course of doing this, because I was, I was writing to a backing track, very often, yes, I would write three or four different sets of lyrics, or if a song had three verses, I'd write 12, you know, and pick God. the best one, or, you know, that, that sort of approach.
0: Can you remind um, us how you came to release the first mainstream record containing the F word? Yeah, I
1: use them. it, and, and, and everyone thinks it's a, a profanity, because, because the word is, is used as a profanity, But of course I don't do that at all. For a start, it's not four letters. I use the present participle. And, you know, the line is it it felt less like fucking and more like making love. I don't see how you can say that any other way. Did it cause a lot of fuss at the time? Yeah, it got me on the front page of the people. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Great achievement. (laughs) And it got me banned from uh, Manchester Free Trade Hall. It did. I'm not (laughs) even kidding. (laughs) Uh, I opened for Julie Felix there and... um, I sang a Chronicles and people complained and the manager of the theatre said that, you know, over his his dead body, when I ever play there again, really? which I, I did about three years later and discovered he'd been fired, so, oh, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> life is so strange.
0: Yeah, you performed at the first ever Glastonbury Festival, of course, and yes, I did. Well, what was that like compared to today? Uh, well, there were a
1: thousand people in the muddy field, and, you know, my bands got paid ten pounds, I mean, I, I think it's changed a bit. <laughs> <laughs> But you went back 25 years later, didn't you? I went back 25 years later, and I went back 40 years later. If they reach the 50th, if, if I'm still around in uh, 10 years' time or whatever, no doubt I'll play the 50th. And <laughs>
0: you know, there are not many people left who, play, who played the first Brastonbury. No, absolutely. Is it kind of the most important gig for you, do you think? No, not really, because it's so
1: vulcanised. I mean, there were 175,000 people go there, and... There are so many stages and so many, you know, there's a dance stage and there's a, like a, the main stage, there's a folk stage. I mean, you, you, it's really just like playing a small festival because you just play to your bit,
0: mm. you know. Um, Al, when you became successful, did you spend or save and treat your mum?
1: Oh, I definitely treated my mum. I bought her an MG, MGB, <laughs> <laughs> which she loved. It was orange. She used to put the hood down and drive around, uh, not at high speeds because she was getting quite old, but um, she loved her car. And I bought my aunt a stereo system, and uh, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I did. I treated myself as well. I, had a, I, I basically have had a, the same philosophy now for over 40 years, which mm-hmm. is uh, what I do is I put the best songs I'm capable of into the world, and out of the world I take the finest wines that are, that are made because I've collected wine all my life. And that's my deal with the world, you know. I'll make you songs, you make me wine.
0: Uh, well, Cliff <laughs> uh, Richard it, makes his it, own alcohol now. Have you thought of having your own label, or do you have your own label, indeed? No, no, no. That's, that's farming. Right. Um, <laughs> I have a friend over here who owns uh,
1: a wine store, and he, his, his. you know, I mean, you know, we deeply <laughs> admire winemakers, but um, it's farming, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm mm. not a farmer.
0: What um, made you move to California after Year of the
1: Cat? Uh, I came here for a show. I had a show in uh, Los Angeles in, actually, 75. It was before Year of the Cat on the Modern Times tour. And uh, there was a club in Hollywood called the Starwood, which is long since gone. Um, I just fell completely in love with with, with everything about it. My first 24 hours in Los Angeles were, I mean, close to unbelievable. Uh, (laughs) We were staying at a place called the, the Continental Hyatt House. Uh, on Sunset Strip, which every all the rock and roll bands stayed there, and and it was referred to as the riot house, because it was, you know, it was total pandemonium, and there Mm -hmm. There were like about 200 (coughs) groupies in the lobby when I checked in. Uh, And I didn't know why. And apparently Led Zeppelin were on the top floor. Uh And um, so I get in the elevator. (laughs) Well, the elevator opens. And there's Jimmy Page, who, of course, had played on three of my records. So Jimmy comes out and throws his arms around me and kisses me on the side of the face. (laughs) And all these girls are looking at me going, oh, God, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And then I speak and I have an English accent. And the next thing thing I know, I'm knee-deep in women. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I go out and do the show and uh, you know it's more pandemonium i mean it was just unbelievable oh. it, was, it was really it was, it was i don't know wall to wall girls and I'd, I'd, in england i'd been a folk singer and, and yeah. that, you know folk singers don't have groupies; they just don't exist <laughs> um so what well, I, I, I i didn't so I land in Los Angeles and it, all of a sudden it's like, my God, I'm li- living in a, in a Hugh Hefman movie. I mean, <laughs> what is going on
2: here?
1: <laughs> Those first 24 hours were so insane. Uh, I thought, this is it. I mean, I, 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 I have to go and live in Los Angeles if it's like this. That's the only place in the world that I want to be. So it was the California so the girls. The the cat came out, I, I came over and um, moved. Okay.
0: And how different did you find life over there? And w- what have you preferred about it generally, apart from the...
1: Night and day. I mean, I, I, still, I still love the place.
0: I'll tell
1: you what I love about Los Angeles. You'd have to read this book by David Niven. It's uh, his oh, yeah. uh, biography. The Moon's a Blue It's autobiography, and he writes about a guy called Michael Romanoff. Mm-hmm. Now, Michael Romanoff claimed to be uh, a descendant of the Russian royal family yeah. related to the Tsar and he opened a restaurant uh, that all the famous celebrities in the 40s and 50s went to called Romanovs. and hmm. worked out that this was you know that he obviously wasn't related to desire uh, and by, by a series of coincidences he eventually found out that this guy had been a butler in, the, in an english country house hmm. <laughs> he wasn't even hmm. russian but, and he, but he totally changed his identity to the extent that one day you know just to wind him up a, a bunch of the hollywood actors got a real Russian, took him into the, into the uh, restaurant and had the Russian speak in Russian to Michael Romanoff, who listened very patiently and, and didn't bat an eyelid. Hmm. And after the guy had finished speaking, he said, yes, that's all very interesting, but it, it would be rude to speak our language in, in front of people who don't understand it. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and then walked away. And I'll tell you why I'm in, in Los Angeles, because you can be, as Michael Romanoff proved, anybody you want to be. Yeah. Uh, people come here from all over the world, and, and they, they could be a farm boy from Iowa, yeah. and if they land in Los Angeles and they say, I am an actor, they're yeah. an actor. Yeah. If people come here from all over the world to be what they can't be in any other place, you, if you go to Cleveland, Ohio, and say, I'm an actor, or, or Tehran, or <laughs> whatever, whatever you can mention, they say, no, you're not. You're a bus driver. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or You're a waiter. You wait tables. But here... Anybody can be anything, and then you just take them at face value. If you say, uh, you know, I am a nuclear scientist, fine, you're a nuclear scientist. So in in a way, it's um, it's always called lotus land and the land of make believe and whatever. Mm. But I believe that the imagination is one of the most valuable things that a human being can have, and here the imaginary life that you create for yourself can actually become real if you, if you believe it enough. And uh, of course, it you know has happened within. And numerous, you know, Hollywood stars who were, you know, who basically came from nowhere and, and, and weren't Hollywood stars, but they wanted to be, so they came here and became ones.
0: Were you ever interested in, in acting, or even offered any uh, parts? No, I'm terrible. I tried, tried joining the school dramatics, and you know, I was awful. Oh. <laughs> now as you say, you've kept your accent really well, despite being in LA all this time. How how come? Is that because you mix with British people out there?
1: No, basically, I, I do the same thing that Mick Jagger does, which is I just adapt to the accent of whoever is talking to me. I mean, he's, he's a total chameleon, and, and everyone says it about him. You know, like if he's talking to a company, he'll wow, Lord, I'll say, you know, that, that if he's talking to a banker, he becomes very much like this, you know. And um, it, I, I think I do that. If I'm talking to an English person, I become more anglicized. And if I'm talking to an Australian, I'll start to talk like this, you know. I don't really understand it. Or
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't try to do it, I, I, but I do notice that it happens. What can you tell us of your home? What's it like? Oh, I'm, I
1: live in an apartment. Oh, okay. um, it's absolutely great. In fact, I'm looking out of the window. Today it's 90 degrees, which is a little warmer than I would like it to be. Mm-hmm. Bright sunshine out there. I just opened the window,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's in a really, really great place. I, I never use the car unless I have to, which means I put about 2,000 miles a year on it, and that's going to gigs. Mm. Uh, because, I, because within five or six blocks, there are 20 restaurants, there's a library, there's a, an absolutely great whole foods market. Pretty much everything that, that, that you can think of is within walking distance, which in Los Angeles is really, really unusual. So mm. they say location, 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 and, and I, not only do I live in the town I want to live in, but I live in the, the part of town that I want to live in. Is this Bel Air or Beverly Hills or something? Like that? No, 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 Bel Air is very spread out. It, yeah. uh, it's a canyon. Yeah, you can drive miles I used to live there
0: yeah.
1: um, no I live about two miles from from the ocean
0: ok and, and uh, how much evidence of your career is there in your home one of the great things and I've been in lots of musicians houses is that typically there's recording equipment
1: everywhere and uh, you know wires and leads and instruments and you'd search in vain for any of that here
0: <laughs> so you don't have a studio at home then
1: no right. you know I made for I think 35 years probably since the late 70s I had a little portable radio, um, mm-hmm. ghetto blasters, I guess they used to call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, this one was tiny. It cost me, um, I think, less than $50, around that anyway. And it had, as they all did in those days, a cassette tape. Uh, and there was a little microphone built into it so that you can talk and, and, and the cassette would record what mm-hmm. you were saying. And I did every demo for 35 years of, of every song I ever wrote on that. Uh, that, that was my recording equipment. <laughs> and it worked perfectly well, you know what I mean? I'd sit and play the piano or the guitar and, and sing into, into the microphone, and um, that was it. All the demos were done that way.
0: How much of your life is your work and music these days?
1: Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> if you've seen my schedule, and I assume you have, yeah. um, then the next couple of months are going to be um, just pretty much solid work. I mean, I yeah. think we've got about 30 shows in the next couple of months. Hmm. Uh, which is a lot and, and all over the world too mm. so um, uh, yeah, I think that you know you could say that in the foreseeable future I'm, I'm gonna be working my butter mm. uh, so it, it would be you know like 98% of my life but when I'm not on the road of course it's a, t- a totally different thing
0: such as what would you do uh, apart from your wines well
1: the wine uh, the wine thing is actually a major element because uh, There are a lot of of wine collectors in Southern California. It's like a mecca for this stuff. So I do tend to go to a fair number of dinners and uh, wine tastings. These are pretty much the people that I socialize with. It's very odd because this is such a showbiz town. Actors, for example, socialize with actors. I mean uh, musicians with musicians. But for whatever reason, even I can't fathom the reason, in in all the time that I've been here, I really don't ever meet people in... uh, in my own line of work unless they happen to collect wine <laughs> the people i meet are, are all different wine collectors and i really really like that because they're all from completely different walks of life you know people i would never normally meet i mean I, i've met professional football players and bankers and uh, i mean big game hunters and <laughs> yeah. you, you name it i mean it, it's just, uh, it's just a whole string of people from utterly different worlds and i think one of the things that is very helpful about that is that you don't get um, you don't get into the mindset where you keep writing the the, the same from the same point of view. Mm. For example, uh, I just read Graham Nash's book. Graham uh, he's a lovely fellow, and his social world is pretty much the you know the, uh, the the Hollywood musical liberal, if you want to look at it that way. Mm. You know, benefit concerts for no nukes, and hanging out with Jackson Brown and and all the David Crosby and all these people in Laurel Canyon. And, mm. and, um, that's a whole, a whole scene. You know mm. what I mean? It's like they, it, and you get into that and he gets into that and sees the world that way. Graham is not likely to sit down and, and have dinner with some, um, you know, right wing anchor, you know, I, 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 because he wouldn't do that, you know, but, um, I, 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 don't choose these people. I mean, but mm. b- by virtue of, of doing the wine circuit, I meet every single shade of the p- political and, mm. um, lifestyle that you can think of i mean it's it's uh, you never know who you're going to run into and mm. what they going to what's going to come out of their mouth and um, from a writer's perspective this is absolutely wonderful because you're exposed to all this stuff that that if you only mixed with your with your own
0: kind you would never come across have you got any famous fans uh, apparently yes <laughs> <laughs> tell us who <laughs> well i
1: i have no proof of this but amongst the people who have said they have my records are jimmy carter and uh, the the one that really shocked me the other day i went to I, I have a a dentist who um my dentist was bob dylan's cousin oh. he's just retired and someone else has taken over but because he was bob dylan's cousin everybody went there i mean like you you know mick jagger would go there and the beatles would go there and, and there are pictures on the walls of pretty much every every single person you, you could think of you know all the all the major music stars and my album is on the on the wall it's wow. like one of the one of the things and, so I'm in there the other day, and uh, Bob Dylan's cousin has retired, so a new guy's taken over. And mm. he says, Oh, he says, incidentally, he said, We had um, someone in uh, just the other day. Yep. And He said, We had this uh, woman in, and, and she looked at your album and said, Oh, I, I love this. I, I'm a real big fan. And I said, Who's that? And he said, Cher. Sure. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh. Now, uh, he could be winding me up, but nonetheless, yeah. I mean, if it's true, it's, it's kind of awesome, I think, in a way, because oh. I would never have learned that. Did you meet any British royalty? <laughs> <A> British royalty. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure I totally approve of them, because they rather use up my position. I mean, I'm, I'm descended, obviously, from the kings.
2: Obviously, uh, and I'm not
1: sure there should be British royalty, and if there should be, it, it should probably be me. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: but no, to answer it in a more serious vein, I, I don't think I have now. Uh,
0: I just wondered uh, if you felt you should be honoured by now, because think if, maybe if you'd stayed in the UK, you'd be MBE, OBE, or something like that, or even oh, no, Sir no, Al. No. I, I, and
1: anyway, I, I, I came very close to inheriting it because uh, my grandfather's older brother was a baronet, right. so I was I, I dodged a bullet there. I, I might have been Sir Alistair Stewart god help me on the folk scene if i have been <laughs>
0: yeah. well we've got a newsreader here called alice it says you'd have had to I keep know. it as al i think
1: and he was uh, he was sir john stewart as he was he was he was <laughs> he went bankrupt to the tune of a million pounds in about 1920 i mean he, oh, he was uh, quite a quite a bad character i think so uh, i don't know I, I came close to being in the aristocracy and it was um too close for comfort i, I don't want
0: any titles do you have like a tartan, do you think, in a, from a Scottish Oh clan? yes, I, I have a Royal appin tartan, but I never wear it. Right. Or <laughs> well, you have a kilt somewhere in your closet. Um, no, what I mean is
1: the clan have, I have, um, right. have one. Yeah, a Stuart tartan, obviously. Yeah.
0: And do you have homes anywhere else apart from, like in the UK for instance?
1: No, no I don't. I only have my, my little condo. Uh, I've been assiduous <laughs> at, at not amassing large amounts of money. I, this is not my quote but it, it sums up my life um, someone was asked about it once and they said you know I think I've spent half of all the money I've ever had in my life on wine and they paused for a second and they said and I think I wasted the rest <laughs> and uh, pretty much I mean for for most of my life I mean if at any time I've ever had any money I bought wine with it so um, you know that. If I hadn't bought wine, I I think I'd be living in a mansion somewhere, but I don't regret a single penny of it. I mean, to my mind, I did the best possible thing with it.
0: What's the most you've ever spent on a bottle of wine, then? Have you bought a Uh, Chateau Lafitte or something?
1: 1947 Petrus. Um, $650 in the mid-'80s, whatever that would be today. Yeah, probably the best bottle of wine I've ever had.
0: (laughs) What chance of you returning to live in the UK one day? I can't. I mean, you'd have, to, I, you'd have to kidnap me to get me out of LA. I mean, I, it has every single thing
1: I would want. I don't think I could live anywhere else. I hmm. mean, I, I've tried and I, it's, I'm completely
0: unsuccessful at it. Do you do British things out there, like play cricket and with the other British people out there? Or do you just- No, no. no.
1: I love cricket. Hmm. Uh, and actually I missed it when I first came here. Um, used to love watching cricket.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, I was never any good at it, but
0: um, I like to watch it. What became of your mum? Is she still around? No, she died. Probably about eight years, I think. Right. And with that, did a lot of your ties with the UK disappear?
1: No, I don't think
0: so. Um, I mean, I
1: still know people over there. My, my aunt is still alive. And, um, you know, obviously school friends and, uh, you know, people I've known for a long time.
0: What do you want to achieve professionally and personally in the future? <laughs>
1: I want to live long enough to drink my 2000 Chateau Margot. That's my life insurance, actually. I bought a case of 2000 Chateau Margot, which is actually much more than I should be spending on wine. But um, it won't be ready probably until about 2025. Oh, okay. I, can, I can probably start on it. May, I may break down and have a bottle before then, but I want to live long enough to finish the last bottle of 2000 Margot, and after that, I don't care.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so where do you keep it? In a fridge somewhere, especially...
1: No, 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 no. It all has, to, it's a very professional thing. I have, have a storage locker. It has to be kept at fifty-five degrees. It has to be uh, vibration-free. It has to be in a dark environment with the right amount of humidity. It's, it's very, it's complicated. You, you don't just. One uh, I met earlier, Rothschild who owns Chattel, the Feet, He's such an offbeat, outland character. And he, he said, oh, "I'll just put your wine where you keep your, where you keep your vegetables." And I, I thought, "Come on!" I mean, everybody knows that's not right. And he then proceeded to tell me a really, really, really dirty joke in a, in a toilet in a restaurant. And I thought, God, this is Baron Elie de Rothschild, you know, who like, <laughs> owns the most famous uh, shadow in oh, probably all of Bordeaux and maybe the world. And he's telling me to keep my wine with my vegetables, and then he's telling me dirty jokes. <laughs> I thought, this is spectacular. I mean, you know, I don't know who, who you'd want to meet out of life, but probably, for me, it, it really wouldn't be musicians. It yeah. would be... Um, you know, it'd be people in completely different walks of life, you know. Yeah. I would have liked to have spent an evening talking to Barbara Tuckman, for example, and um, probably authors, as much as anything. But, but meet, meeting uh, Baron Ellie de Rothstein, and for that matter, Baron Khalid, his cousin, yeah. uh, was uh, a thrill. You know, I mean, these are remarkable people. But, you know, I don't want to meet George Michael or somebody, you know what I mean? It wouldn't <laughs> mean anything to me. What about you writing a book,
0: an autobiography? Um, maybe.
1: It's, it's, it's a definite maybe. I have actually started one whether i have the patience to finish it is um, another matter
0: is that a novel or an autobiography
1: no neither um <laughs> when i grew up I, I was obsessed with nonsense poetry i always wanted to write something in, in the style of say alice in wonderland and that's exactly what i'm doing
0: hmm. what about another album from you when will that happen
1: um that will happen when people start buying them again oh, <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> The delivery system during my lifetime has gone from 45 to 33 and a third, to oh, what, well, 78 even before yeah. that, through to cassettes and eight tracks and CDs and downloads and who knows what. And all this at the moment is in advance because uh, music essentially is considered a free commodity by a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, if they don't buy it, I'm certainly not going to spend a year making it. Besides mm-hmm. which, I've made 20 of other things. And, uh, you know, there, there are probably albums that I've made that people don't, have and then and if they're interested in hearing something else then it's all out
0: there <laughs> so might you never record again
1: well not unless people and not unless there's um, a way of making it it pay because it costs you know it costs a fair amount you've got to write the songs and then you've got to record them so you've got to pay musicians you've got to pay for studio time then you've got to have someone design an album cover and then you've got to stamp it out uh, i mean the costs have come way down from the seventies, but hmm. it's still might run you fifty or one hundred thousand dollars, and if you then sell one hundred and ninety two of them um, you know then then you're out fifty or one hundred thousand yeah. dollars and uh, and even if we broke even uh, or you know made even if it sold twenty five thousand copies you know which is highly unlikely in this day and age, yeah. uh, if you factor in the time, uh, I would be working for a whole year for something less than minimum wage you know, oh, which that doesn 't sound attractive to me, especially when I can you know, go and play at the Albert Hall and make serious money. <laughs> I say. And to what extent do you feel you've been given
0: the credit you deserve?
1: Well, I think I've probably be, been given more credit than I deserve. I mean, I really don't think in those terms, you know, you, you, you've got this thing, you've got this life, and it is an incredible privilege, and other people have said this too, to spend your lifetime doing something that you love, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It, it, most people have jobs, and I've never wanted a job, uh, and by sheer chance, Issue talents that I have are that I can rhyme things and I can read a wine list and, mm. and these are the two most important things for doing my job
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> to me I mean if you just made enough to make a living, it would still be a fantastic life because you, because you've managed to i've managed to get through my entire life without actually really ever having a, a proper job you know playing the guitar and writing songs it, it's a fantastic way to go through life so whether you sell ten records or ten million or a or hundred million is kind mm. of irrelevant because the, so the thing that matters to me is the lifestyle uh you know the thing that matters to me is i can wake up in the morning i don't have to go and sit in an office and count numbers of other people's money and and um, and you know sort of sell things to people who that you know that they don't need or really want mm. uh i can get up and play the piano i mean fantastic you know <laughs> I, I just think that's such a privilege. Oh, so great. Yeah. That, that nothing, you know that the amount of success you have is pretty much irrelevant.
0: How important to you is your musical legacy?
1: Completely unimportant. I mean, it couldn't really? matter less. If, I, if I'm dead, I'm not gonna know, and it's not gonna matter. I mean, it, mm. it really, I mean, I do these things to, to basically for myself. You wouldn't write a song like "Roads to Moscow because you wanted to either get rich or famous, and because that, it, it, it's completely uncommercial, it has no commercial application whatsoever. Mm. And uh, I could say that about probably 99% of the songs that I've written wow. I mean, they are basically done for me. If, if somebody, by sheer chance, uh, in a hundred years' time dug me up and said, you know, these were all good, it would be splendid for him, but it would make no difference to me, because I would never know. <laughs> So I don't, I don't really spend any time whatsoever thinking about things like legacies because it's a waste of time.
0: So if I ask you how you want people to remember you after you've left this planet? Oh, I don't think it matters if they
1: remember me or not. I mean, it really doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, it couldn't matter unless they're, you know, family or, or are close in some way. I, I don't think it matters. I mean, you can never know. You, you know someone's music. I mean, I know Bob Dylan's music. But I, I don't need to meet him I, you know i don't really have any desire to meet him and I'm, I'm really happy he wrote all those songs that i like but whether he has a legacy or doesn't have a legacy i mean it, it really doesn't matter what matters is that when i heard Chimes of freedom i thought it was the most awesome thing i'd ever heard in my life and i immediately sat down and learned it and yeah. desolation Row." so that matters in the way that it affected me but you know you don't need to meet the artist and very often if you do meet the artist it's a disappointment I and mean, then you know you meet uh, some people are actually hostile and, and, and really rather odd, you know. And other people are, are sweethearts and they're really <laughs> rather hmm. nice. I think in general, and I, I would avoid meeting people whose work I admire just in case it was off-putting.